NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The top prosecutor in Buffalo, New York, says today's guilty plea by Peyton Gendron is swift justice for a racist murderer. The 19-year-old gunman is expected to spend life in prison, as NPR's Brian Mann reports. Erie County District Attorney John Flynn described the deadly attack last May as a tragedy for the city of Buffalo. Gendron, who is a self-declared white supremacist, used a semi-automatic rifle to murder 10 black shoppers at a Topps grocery store. In writings, the gunman described the violence as part of an effort to terrorize black Americans. He's now likely to spend the rest of his life behind bars. During a press conference, Flynn said the guilty plea won't limit the Justice Department's efforts to prosecute Gendron on separate federal charges that could bring the death penalty. This carnage came as part of a wave of mass shootings over the last year that's devastated communities nationwide. Brian Mann, NPR News. A candlelight vigil will be held tonight in Chesapeake, Virginia, to honor the victims of a shooting at a Walmart that left six people dead, several others wounded. The 31-year-old Walmart supervisor left behind a note claiming he was, quote, mocked by his co-workers. His victims ranged in age from 70 to just 16 years old. The gunman died at the scene of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot. COVID-19 is likely to surge again in the U.S. this winter, and it could claim more than 80,000 additional lives by the end of April. That's according to the CDC. NPR's Rob Stein has more. The Scenario Modeling Hub, an independent consortium of researchers that's been helping the CDC track the pandemic, says COVID will probably cause another 650,000 hospitalizations and another 81,000 deaths by April 29th. That's assuming the rate at which people get one of the new Omicron boosters continues to lag and the more immunovasive subvariants continue to dominate. If that's the case, the researchers estimate this winter surge would be less severe than last winter's, but take a bigger toll than the Delta wave that hit the country the summer of 2021. Rob Stein, NPR News. Meanwhile, police in China are cracking down on demonstrators protesting the severe COVID lockdown rules that they blame for the deaths of 10 people in an apartment fire last week. COVID cases are rising in China, but these protests are rare, with some demonstrators calling on President Xi Jinping to resign. Meanwhile, White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says they're watching the situation closely. Our message to peaceful protesters around the world uh, is the same and, and consistent. People should be allowed uh, uh, the, the the right to assemble and to peacefully protest policies or laws or dictates that uh, that they take issue with. And he says he doesn't think the protests will lead to further supply chain problems. Wall Street lower ahead of the close, the Dow down 497. You're listening to NPR News. Public Radio KMXT is supported by a grant from North Pacific Fuel, serving and continuing the tradition of excellent service to the community at three locations, Marine Dock at 715 Shelikoff Street, Gas and Go at the Y, and Gas and Go at Mill Bay. For KMXT, I'm Terry Haynes. A group of state senators not only sliced up the turkey over Thanksgiving, but also carved out Senate leadership roles. Republican Senator Gary Stevens announced the formation of a bipartisan majority coalition on late Friday afternoon. The Kodiak lawmaker is now the incoming Senate president, a leadership position he's held before. Stevens called the new group, which will be made up of nine Democrats and 11 Republicans, a healthy organization. He hopes that they will be able to avoid some of the protracted battles that plagued this year's session. The majority caucus could never agree on a budget. 
we had several members who were extremely conservative, and they always voted against the budget. And, of course, you know, that's the main job of, of the legislature by the Constitution is to pass a budget. Stevens said Republicans had to enlist the help of Democrats to pass a budget this year, so they might as well work together from the start, especially with some big challenges ahead this next session. It looks like oil will not be as high as we had hoped it would be. Also, you have to realize that the permanent fund itself lost money the first time this past year. I'm hoping they recover, but you know the stock market has been down. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that the revenues are going to be lower than anticipated. We're going to have to deal with that. And how do we fund government people want? How do we do that? Stevens and Senator Bill Wilikowski, an Anchorage Democrat who joined the coalition, both agree that education needs to be a top priority. You've had flat funding on the base student allocation for seven years, six, seven years. And now we're seeing the results of that, the really dramatic results where we're seeing schools closing all across Alaska. Wilikowski will become chairman of the powerful Senate Rules Committee. In other leadership positions, Senator Kathy Giesel, an Anchorage Hillside Republican, will serve as Senate Majority Leader. The Finance Committee will have three co-chairs, Republican Bert Stedman of Sitka and two rural Democrats, Senator Lyman Hoffman and Senator Donnie Olson of Golovin. Residents of the Matanuska Susitna Borough will be getting a lot more power from the sun next summer. That's when construction is expected to finish in Houston on what will be the state's largest solar farm, which is projected to produce enough energy to power 1,400 homes. Late last month, the state-owned Alaska Energy Authority agreed to loan $4.9 million to the project. Curtis Thayer is executive director at AEA and says renewables like solar help offset rail belt communities' reliance on natural gas. Thayer says it is the goal of the state and the governor to reduce carbon emissions, but that won't happen overnight. You're never going to be able to, to do everything on wind, everything on solar, you know, or hydro. There needs to be a balance. And so that balance is we, as technology advances, then hopefully we can wean ourselves off of the carbon and do that. But that's going to be a bridge. Thayer says the added renewable power will not raise costs for consumers and will actually stabilize their rates, especially in the long term. That's possible because the price of solar has fallen rapidly in recent years, dropping 80 to 90 percent over the last decade, according to Jen Miller, CEO of Renewable IPP. Three years ago, Renewable IPP built what is currently the biggest solar farm in Alaska next to the Park Highway in Willow. Now, Miller's company is, is developing the Houston project just down the highway, and it's set to be six times bigger. You know, the perception is, is you know, solar in Alaska, you must be crazy. Um, but given the, the dramatic uh, price decrease in the technology as, it, as, as it's deployed more and more around the world, that's what now makes it a viable technology yeah, here in this northern state. Miller says the Houston array is well-suited to Alaska's climate because its panels are comprised of two-sided because the panels that it's comprised of are two-sided optimizing their winter production and so when you know when february march and a sunny you know we have a lot of sunny nice days during that time as well we'll be able to capture extra production as it bounces off the snow and hits the backside of the panel 
Alaska currently gets less than 1% of its power from solar, but Miller says that as the technology continues to improve, that number could grow to 25% or higher. The Houston project is on track to be completed by August 2023. A woman accused of voting illegally in both Alaska and Florida during the 2020 elections will face charges in a Florida court on December 8th, according to an online court record. The Alaska Beacon reports that when Cheryl Ann Leslie is arraigned on felony counts of casting more than one ballot, she will become just the second person charged with voter fraud related to Alaska's 2020 election. Despite claims by some Alaskans that fraudulent voting changed the state's election results two years ago, no evidence of fraud on that scale has been uncovered by investigators. In a January 2020 statement, Governor Mike Dunleavy said three cases of possible voter fraud were being investigated by state troopers. The Florida case was the result of a special group of Florida investigators assigned specifically to election-related crimes. It wasn't clear whether the case was one of the three mentioned by Dunleavy. According to public records, with the Alaska court system, only two voter misconduct cases have been filed since 2020. One remains sealed by a judge's order, making details of the case impossible to determine. The other case involves a copper center man who signed absentee ballots with an anti-gay epithet. Pleasant Valley Two Rivers residents have voted to create a fire service area. It's a milestone for people who live along the China Hot Springs Road east of Fairbanks, where a string of arson attacks in 2021 inspired locals to organize a volunteer fire department. As KUAC's Dan Bross reports, administrative steps need to be completed before fire service begins July 1st of next year. Results from a November 15th election conducted by the Fairbanks North Star Borough show 149 votes in favor and 92 against a proposal to create a fire service area between China Hot Springs Road, miles 12 and 27. Pleasant Valley Two Rivers Fire Association President Michelle Ethan says the next step is selecting local residents to serve on a fire service area commission. They fill out an application. If there is uh, more than seven, then there is a process for selecting, but up to seven, then the, the mayor can just appoint. Ethan says the commissioner's primary responsibility will be to establish a budget for the fire department and a property tax mill rate to cover it. And have it ready for um, borough assembly approval in January. As a potential starting point for the commission, Ethan says the Fire Association developed a $200,000 baseline operating budget, which would result in an additional 1.5 mil annual property tax. So a house and property worth 200000 is looking at about a $300 increase. Tax revenue will be used to contract with the local volunteer fire department to provide service beginning July 1st, 2023. Ethan says the department, which began organizing following a string of arson attacks in the summer of 2021, has spent the last 16 months getting ready, including gathering donated equipment. We've been the beneficiary of so many departments that have I think because of the circumstance that happened in Two Rivers, have been wonderful and have donated so much. Ethan says fire service will have the added benefit of increasing the number of companies that offer fire insurance in the area and lowering rates. In Fairbanks, I'm Dan Bross. The Army Corps of Engineers has awarded a contract to clean up PFAS-contaminated soil at Eielson Air Force Base. The chemical used in firefighting foams has been linked to serious health problems. 
and a longtime Alaska contamination expert is skeptical of the PFAS cleanup technique that will be used at Ileson. KUAC's Tim Ellis has this report. The Corps of Engineers awarded the $27.6 million contract to Anchorage-based Bryce Engineering earlier this month. It calls for the contractor to clean up about 130,000 cubic yards of soil excavated during construction of eight facilities to accommodate the F-35 buildup at Ileson. That's enough soil to cover an acre of land about nine feet deep. The contractor will employ a process called soil washing that uses water to extract enough of the PFAS to meet the state's cleanup standard. But Pam Miller, who heads up Alaska Community Action on Toxics, says the project presents several concerns. It's an experimental technology. I don't think it's proven. Miller says soil washing hasn't had enough real-world testing to ensure it works as well as its advocates claim. And she says there's a lack of transparency on whether the process will clean the soil enough to be safe for use as a backfill as required by the contract. So I have some big questions about that and some skepticism. And I think there are better and more innovative technologies out there that actually destroy PFAS. An Ileson spokesperson declined to talk on tape and referred questions to the Corps of Engineers. A Corps official said in an email that the water that washes away the PFAS will be run through filters to remove two PFAS-related compounds. The official says, quote, a high-concentration, low-volume solution of the processed water would then be incinerated. But Miller says some of the more than 12,000 PFAS-related chemical compounds will get through the filter, and she says the contaminated filter would then create another disposal problem. So this is trading one hazardous waste stream for another, and there's no really safe, effective way to dispose of these concentrated hazardous waste that the granulated activated charcoal filters become. Miller says she also worries that the state's standard for PFAS soil remediation that the contractor must meet aren't stringent enough to protect human health. This class of chemicals, the PFAS chemicals, are virtually unregulated at this point. There are not health protective standards for drinking water, for soil cleanup. Miller says two measures introduced in the last legislative session would have set state standards high enough to protect people's health, but lawmakers failed to pass the measures, so she hopes they'll be reintroduced in the coming session. We just don't think the state is doing enough to enact enforceable standards, whether for soil cleanup or for groundwater or drinking water standards, and that's what we need. The soil washing project would clean up only one of Ileson's 16 PFAS-contaminated sites. A State Department of Environmental Conservation official said in an email Tuesday that DEC doesn't know the full extent of contamination around the base. He said the agency estimated six years ago the size of a plume of PFAS-contaminated groundwater beneath Ileson at about 4,800 acres. And several other military installations in the state also are dealing with the problem. Both the state and the federal government, including the Department of Defense, are moving entirely too slowly. PFAS represent a a very severe threat to public health and the environment, and it's not taken seriously enough. PFAS and related compounds have been linked to cancers, endocrine disorders, reproductive health issues, and immune system deficiencies. A Corps of Engineer official said in an email that the contractor will build facilities on Ileson next spring and begin soil washing in the summer. The Corps expects to complete the project by the end of 2026. In Delta Junction, 
I'm Tim Ellis. KMXT Local News is underwritten in part by GCI. GCI has adjusted store hours across the state to keep our customers and employees as safe as possible during this time. The most up-to-date store hours are available on GCI.com. Read Diverse, Read Indie on Insight Daily Radio. Conversations with today's most influential authors from the world of independent publishing. The Lonely Assassin is the latest installment in the Milan thriller book series by master storyteller Jack Erickson. In the novel, a Russian banker embezzles millions, laundering money in Switzerland for Russian oligarchs, and then flees with his Italian wife to a remote location on Italy's Lake Como. Vladimir Putin orders an assassin to Milan to take out the banker. But unexpectedly, the assassin meets an intriguing Italian woman in Milan who probes into his emotional life. On a dangerous assignment, the assassin realizes he's in a deep personal crisis. We spoke with him about this latest exciting novel. It took me probably about two years to write the first book, uh, 13 Days in Milan. I returned to Milan in October of 12, and I had a researcher. The researcher got us an appointment at the Questura, the police headquarters, with the capo and the chief deputy of the anti-terrorism police. And imagine that we go to the Questura, the deputy meets us and spends an hour with us answering questions about the plot. I'd written out the plot and questions. My researcher translated them. And uh, when we walked into the meeting, uh, I reached out and I took my passport and I handed it across to the deputy and she, she smiled at me, waved her hand and said, no, 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 we know who you are. <laughs> That's what police do, they investigate. That's author Jack Erickson on his latest novel, The Lonely Assassin, which is available online at bookstores and at Red Brick Press. Read Diverse, Read Indie is presented by the Independent Book Publishers Association. Excuse me, sir. I'm asking people to take a short survey. Do you have a minute? Well, I suppose so. Thank you. Do you listen to your local public radio station? Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, I'm listening to it right now. World Cafe. I see. So, are you a member of your local public radio station? Uh, no. I just listen sometimes. I see. What times of day do you occasionally listen? Oh, you know, I like the morning shows, you know, with the music and the announcements and stuff, you know, and the local news at noon, got to listen to that. World Cafe, of course, listening to that right now, and then the the three o'clock shows are good, too. Uh, Way with Words, I like that one. Oh, and that classical show in the morning, uh, Performance Today. Oh, and uh, and I guess the evening news, you know, it gives you local, state, and national news. Um, Plus, the volunteer music shows at night are really great. Uh, Have you ever heard Rolling with the Blues? So, you sometimes listen all day long? Uh, well, yeah, I guess so. I see. Okay, next question. Are you aware that public radio depends on its listeners to become members and support their local public station, and that without its members, public radio would perish from this earth? Uh, um, well, 
I'll just write down yes for that one. Only a couple more questions, sir. Did you know that you can become a sustaining member of KMXT for as little as $5 a month by simply filling out a short form on kmxt.org? Uh, yes, you know, I, I think I did know that. I see. Almost finished. Tell me, sir, do you have any difficulties sleeping at night? Oh, well, yes, I do. Doctor says I shouldn't drink coffee in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if that's all... Oh, just one more thing, sir. Let me just lean over and change your radio station really quickly. Hey, hey, hands off, Poindexter. I like that song. Very well. Then let me ask you this. Oh, no more questions, Mr. Gallup. I'm convinced. I have to get my phone out so I can call KMXT. Uh, let's see, 907-486-3181 and become a sustaining member today. Or I guess I could do it online at kmxt.org. Become a member today. Hey, that was my line. What if accessing your personal and family immunization records was as easy as checking your phone? The Docket app is a secure option that allows Alaskans to quickly access their immunization records. Need immunization records for school or travel? Docket makes it simple and is available for download from the App Store or Google Play. Learn more at vaccinationrecords.alaska.gov. Paid for by the Alaska Department of Health. This is the Island Messenger, a look at personal messages, the weather, and community announcements. Good afternoon and welcome to your Island Messenger for Monday. It is the 28th day of November. Sorry, a lot of papers up here. The year 2022. The sun rose today at 9.22. It will set promptly at 4.31 this afternoon, giving us 7 hours and 9 minutes of precious daylight, a loss of 3 minutes and 8 seconds compared to yesterday. Our record high for this date was 54 degrees. That was set in 1970. And our record low was 5 degrees set last year, chilly, chilly last year, 2021. Currently 28 degrees, and it continues to snow they have calm winds, 92% humidity out at the airport, but an understandable three-quarters of a mile of visibility. This snow is expected to continue until about 3 this afternoon, high near 37 today, northeast wind to 15, gusting to 20. Another 2 to 4 inches expected to have fallen during the day when it's all over. 20% chance of snow before 9 p.m. tonight. Mostly cloudy skies in the early evening will gradually clear the low of 27 overnight, northwest winds to 15, gusting to 20. And for tomorrow, they're calling for sunny skies, high near 35, northwest winds to 20. Looking at our local tides, we have an incoming tide. Our next high tide here on the east side will be at 438 this afternoon and be 9.5 feet. That will be followed by a low tide at 1139 this evening of minus 5 tenths. And our morning high tide will be at 630 a.m., and be 7.1 feet here on the east side. Over on the west side, your high tide will happen at 5.06 this afternoon and be 14 feet in Larson Bay, followed by a low tide about midnight, 12.04 a.m. of minus 6 tenths. And your morning low tide, morning high tide rather, 
will be at 6.44 a.m. and be 11.9 feet in Larson Bay. Mariners, here's your forecast for Marmot Island to Sitkanak, Kodiak's east side offshore. Small craft advisory through tomorrow. Northeast winds increasing to 25 knots this afternoon, seas to 8 feet. North 25 tonight and seas to 9 feet. And north 25 tomorrow, seas to 8 feet. Over in the Shelikoff Strait, we have a small craft advisory through tomorrow as well. Northeast 30 today, seas to 11 feet. Those seas are expected to subside to 5 feet by midnight tonight. And for tomorrow, north 25, seas to 5 feet in the Shelikoff. The Kodiak City Council will be holding a work session on Thursday. That meeting will begin at 6.30 p.m. and will be immediately followed by a regular meeting when the work session is over. Both meetings will be held in the Kodiak Public Library and are open to the public. The meetings will be web-streamed, and the web-streaming link and meeting packets are available online at the City of Kodiak website. If you have any other questions, contact the City Clerk at 907-486-8636. The Historic Preservation Committee is having a meeting today at 5 p.m. at Fisherman's Hall. This meeting is open to the public. Agendas and meeting packets are available online at the City of Kodiak website. For more information, call the Kodiak Historical Society at 907-486-5920. The Downtown Kodiak Revitalization Special Committee is meeting November 30th, that's Wednesday, that meeting will be held at 9.30 a.m. at the Kodiak Public Library and is open to the public. Agendas and meeting packets are available online at the City of Kodiak website, and this meeting will also be web-streamed from that same site. For more information, call the City Clerk's Office at 907-486-8636. Also on Wednesday, the Senior Citizens of Kodiak will be holding a regular monthly board meeting. That's happening at 1 p.m. in the Senior Center Multipurpose Room. The public is invited to this meeting. For more information, call the Senior Center at 907-486-6181. And don't forget the big Chiniac Christmas Market is going on Saturday, December 3rd. That's next Saturday, isn't it, Pam? Yep, sure is. This next Saturday, it's noon to 4 p.m. at the Chiniac Library. The road should be clear by now, by then. Take a right on King Crab Way at mile 41 and a quarter. The road will curve to the right, and the library is located on the left-hand side of the road. They will be featuring arts and crafts, pottery, salves, preserves, baked goods, and more, all handmade in Kodiak. And the Kiwanis tree sales are going on. This is the first weekend of the tree sales. They are going on weekends only until December 11th or until everything's gone. For Fridays, they will be open noon to 7 p.m., Saturdays, they will be open 10 to 4 p.m., and Sundays, they will be open 12 to 4 p.m. They have three varieties of trees, as well as wreaths, mantelpieces, and cedar garland by the foot. I want one foot of garland, please. Also, the Kodiak Audubon's annual membership meeting and winter birds presentation is Friday, December 9th. Bill Pyle will review the details of the Christmas bird count, and Robert Cork, Robin Corcoran will present a slideshow with identification tips on the winter birds of Kodiak. The event will be held at the Kodiak College in rooms 128 through 130 of the Benny Benson Building. Join them at 6.30 p.m. to renew your membership, enjoy a slice of pizza, and sign up for this year's Christmas bird count. The talk will begin at 7 p.m. It's a wonderful opportunity to sharpen your skills for the 2020 count. This year's count will be held in town on Sunday, December 18th, and at Narrow Cape 
on Saturday, December 21st. Listen for the Island Messenger here on Public Radio KMXT two times a day, Monday through Friday at 9 a.m. and during the Midday Report at 1220. If you have a community announcement or personal message, including lost and found items or pets, you can call KMXT at 486-3181, fax us at 486-2733, or email psa at kmxt.org.